Kassan in Swahili is dedicated to all you beautiful people around the world. We say Jumbo! Well, hello and greetings to the Global Mission Podcast. My name is Richard Lewis, your host, as we discuss the issues of worldwide missions and the task of the Great Commission. There are two topics I want to address today. First is, what is church planting? And secondly, what is cross-cultural church planting? In 1975, my wife Sandy and I were approved to be missionaries. I had graduated from Bible college with a degree in theology, and soon after that we were called to a little church of less than 25 people on the border of Texas in a town called Del Rio. I must admit that I didn't know much about starting a church, and I certainly didn't know anything about cross-cultural church planting as it would have served me well in a city that was made up of Anglos and a military town, but was overwhelmingly Hispanic, living on the other side of the San Felipe River. And of course, across the border was the city of Acuna, with a population at that time of about 100,000 people. My college classes were made up of standard courses, such as hermeneutics, theology, church history, eschatology, and certain books of the Bible, such as Isaiah, Romans, and the Epistles. We were even taught how to lead congregational singing, waving our arms to a three or four beat of bringing in the sheaves. We had one full semester on how to preach, preparing a sermon, i.e. homiletics, and instructed how to deliver a message. I never had a class on how to start a church, and as I have said many times, Bible colleges and seminaries are geared toward equipping pastors in ministry, not church planting. I think the closest class I had to church planting was a course on evangelism, which was primarily memorizing scripture in leading an unbeliever to salvation. But again, evangelism was taught from a monocultural perspective, it was not cross-cultural evangelism in speaking to a Muslim or a Buddhist. The only mission class I had was an introduction to missions, and even then it was more about the history of missions and not so much about what it meant to be a missionary. So when I arrived in Del Rio, my focus was on growing a congregation, not starting a church. Back in those days, church growth was emphasized, and once a month, pastors would gather for what we called a regional fellowship meeting. The overriding question at every gathering was, what was our attendance the past few weeks, how many people were saved, and how many people were baptized? When I felt the call to missions, my model for ministry was a carryover from my college training that I was to take the gospel and evangelize those who had never heard of Christ. 
To evangelize, of course, means to proclaim. Evangelism also means to proselytize, to persuade, to alter conviction. Evangelism is a biblical concept, as the Apostle Paul exhorted young Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. And so, after I arrived in East Africa and learned Swahili, I began working with an unreached people group of people who belonged to a certain tribe called the Pokot. My North American model was duplicated in an African context. Through God's grace, there were many positive outcomes through our efforts, and I'm grateful for the things he accomplished through our time in Kenya. It wasn't until our second term in Africa that I began to question my approach in missions. While indeed some Pocot people were coming to Christ, the vast majority were uninterested. Stooped in their animistic beliefs and superstitions, Having a meeting on Sunday, singing and preaching, was neither interesting or relevant for the people who lived in a hostile bush environment. Constructing a nice church building to meet in, or having youth programs, for the most part did little to advance the kingdom in the wasteland of Kenya. I was missing something and didn't have a lot of answers to rectify the problem. It was on that second term on the field that I was introduced to the concept of contextualization, a word that I never heard of in any of my classes in Bible college. The term contextualization really wasn't introduced until 1972, a couple of years after I graduated. Contextualization, my simple definition, is simply conveying the message, no matter what the message is, framed in the context of the people we are talking to. To use a homely example, if I am talking to my 27-year-old granddaughter about the work of Christ and the salvation he has provided for mankind, I may incorporate terms of soteriology, which includes discussion on redemption, sacrificial atonement, and grace. If, however, I am talking to my 10-year-old granddaughter, that very same message could be summed up with, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me. No high-sounding theological words for her, just simple concepts she would understand. Context is the key in communicating the gospel. And I was discovering that my message to the illiterate Pocot was not within their context. Contextualization, says Tim Keller, is not giving people what they want. It is giving God's answers to the questions they are asking and in forms they can comprehend. My journey in understanding contextualization started when I went to a bookstore in Nairobi and found a copy of Christianity Rediscovered by Vincent Donovan. Donovan was a Catholic priest who worked among the Maasai people in Tanzania. He, like myself, was questioning how to be more effective in reaching a semi-nomadic people with the gospel. The Tanzanian Catholic Church was a model, like mine, that in no way was contextual. 
The Roman Catholics are distinguished by buying property, building huge church structures, establishing schools and hospitals. All very impressive, but having little to no effect in reaching the Maasai. After several months and years of study, both formal and informal, I began to understand that my whole approach to church planning in Bokat was an obstacle in reaching the community. As I continued my research, my entire doctoral thesis was a study on how to understand culture, especially the Pokot culture, and the steps needed to develop an appropriate strategy for outreach. Without going into detail, I will highlight why my church planting model was all wrong. First was the simple issue of time. My model, which I imported from America, was to meet on Sunday morning at around 8 a.m. What I didn't realize was the Pocot had a different concept of time than the model that I was imposing on them. The Pocot do not live or work on a seven-day calendar. Every day is the same. Sunday is no different from Wednesday. Morning meetings, no matter the day, was a non-starter as they were herders and throughout the day were tending their livelihood. Secondly, Pocot men and women do not gather together in formal meetings, and I was inviting men and women to attend church. The church building was a rectangle structure, whereas in their culture, men meet in a semicircle with women and children outside the circle. My messages were biblical, but with topics of sin, forgiveness, and salvation, they were all foreign abstractions that was confusing to my listeners. Even their image of God was baffling as their concept of God, or Aguch as they referred to him in their language, was distant and unknowable. Their world reality was unseen spirits, good luck, bad luck, and witch doctors. After analyzing their culture and the context in which they live, it's a wonder anyone ever came to understand the gospel, as my model was as foreign as the one who presented the message to them. Now, finding and understanding the problem in my model, but how do I rectify the problem was another matter. One of Vincent Donovan's famous concepts in his book was what he called the choke law. The Roman Catholic model is dominated with program and structures. Donovan says that when an organization or a missionary invests their resources in brick and mortar, it chokes out the ability to be innovative in reaching the unreached, like the Maasai. When a person or organization invests hundreds of thousands of dollars in property, buildings, and programs, they by default become protectors of that investment. As a result of this capital spending, missionaries and organizations are slow to turn over those assets to the nationals and become managers of their costly enterprise. 
The collateral damage of the choke law is that it strangles out our ability to create a new contextualized models to emerge. Even with the knowledge of culture, it's hard to change a well-established model, even if that traditional model is ineffective. Like Donovan, trying to change accepted practices is nearly impossible. As Philip Crosby states, slowness to change usually means fear of the new. The new paradigm for reaching the Pocot, though contextually more acceptable, has been slow to be adopted and rejected outright by traditional church planters. Because few pastors and missionaries have been introduced to the subject of contextualization, we are unaware and unable to create new ways of reaching our communities. For some, contextualization is a threat. Missiologist Chuck Kraft believes we can use forms, even religious ones, already found in societies to help people construct faith allegiance to God by using their own forms rather than import new ones. For some evangelicals, this is a scary thought. Can the forms found in a animistic Catholic or Muslim culture really be an avenue for the gospel? Kraft goes on to say, meanings are located within people rather than in the messages sent from one person to another. My message to the Pocot was not the problem, but how it was presented to them. It had no meaning. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life, has no meaning to people who do not understand God, Son, belief, or everlasting life. My new pattern of reaching the Pukat was to meet with them at night at their compounds, speaking to the men, though the women listened in the background. We had a discussion. I didn't preach, and we talked about simple things like, why is there sickness, fighting, and death? We talked about their favorite subject that centers around cattle and shepherding. I asked about their singing and what they meant. No Bible reading, as they could not read, but plenty of references to what God says about the subjects we discussed. What was I doing? Trying to make the gospel relevant within their context. People who object to this approach in missions point out the dangers of syncretism, which is the fusion of the gospel with other religious faith. But, as Scott Wood wrote in the Evangelical Mission Quarterly in 2003, the goal in contextualization is not to make the gospel more Islamic as possible. Rather, it is to communicate the unchanging truth to an Islamic audience so that it makes sense to them. Though I am a strong advocate in understanding culture, and in some cases accommodating culture, scripture is not subservient to culture. Scott Morrell, in his 2012 book, Contextualization in World Mission, writes, simply stated Contextualization means that the message, 
is defined by scripture, but shaped by culture. I began this podcast by asking what is church planning and what is cross-cultural church planning. Obviously, church planning is not merely evangelism, as you can do evangelism and never plant a church, but you can't plant the church without doing evangelism. Most pastors throughout the world are not church planters, and evangelism is primarily to those within our own ethnic and language group. The distinguishing work of a missionary or a pastor working in a multicultural community is or should be to plant churches in a context that is not their own with the goal for it to be an indigenous model, not an American, Filipino, Costa Rican, or Korean model. Cross-cultural church planters are those who learn the host culture, learn the host language, and communicate the message of Christ with the host culture audience in mind. When the Apostle Paul addressed a group in Athens, this was his contextualized message. Men of Athens, he said, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He even quoted from their philosophers in the process. Let us go therefore and do likewise. Understanding the culture in which unbelievers live and present the message of Christ in a way people will understand. We look forward with John the Apostle to that day that is described in Revelation 7 when he wrote, When this was done, I looked again, and before my eyes appeared a vast crowd beyond man's power to number. They came from every nation and tribe and people and language. And they stood before the throne of God, dressed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. With a great voice they shouted these words, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits upon the throne of the Lamb. Well, again, thanks for listening, and keep learning. Keep growing until the next time we meet to discuss this fascinating subject we call missions. No problem. So long, friends. God bless you. No problem.